Hi, Patrick Madrid here. Thanks for listening. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code PATRICK and get a free phone. Go to CharityMobile.com. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Hello and welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show. Here's that number to call if you'd like to be on the air. I'd love to talk to you. And that number is 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Emails can go to patrick at relevantradio.com. I appreciate your emails, even though from time to time somebody <laughs> got one over the weekend uh, from a fake email address. I responded to it, but it was a fake email address, and so I couldn't send it back. But maybe I'll read that email. It was what we affectionately call here a nasty gram, and um, I'll share that with you later in the show. But come one, come all, regardless of your opinion, I would love to hear from you. Patrick at relevantradio.com. First thing I want to share with you is some good news, as I like to do whenever possible. This has to do with a political, um, I guess we would call her a politician. Her name is Mar Galceran. She is in Spain. And this is being reported by Live Action. So shout out to Lila and Kaylin and all the great people at Live Action. Her name, Mar Galceran, may not be familiar to you, but she has become the first woman, woman with Down syndrome to be elected to the country's regional parliament. So she'll be taking office as a deputy for the popular party, PP, in the Valencian parliament. Last This took place uh, just recently. In recent interviews, she said she insists that she doesn't want people to treat her any differently. She says, I want people to see me as a person, not just for my disability. According to News 24, Galceran's foray into politics isn't new. She joined the, the popular party at age 18. She worked her way up the political ladder. She advocated for the inclusion of people with intellectual disabilities. She told El País, the national newspaper in Spain, or one of them, society is starting to see that people with Down syndrome have a lot to contribute. But that's a very long road. True inclusion must start at school at all stages. But if that does not happen... There will be no inclusion and no true integration. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of her giving a speech recently. This, again, is the uh, first person, in this case a woman, who has Down syndrome to be elected to the regional parliament in Spain. Ya ahora ya justo que que se hubiese cambiado el artículo 49 de nuestra Constitución, de nuestra Carta Magna, los términos disminuidos y yeah, so you get a sense of, oh, did you have more to play, young Thomas? I think we got it. I think we covered it. Thank you. So, and you can find her on YouTube if you'd like to, you know, see her giving a speech or something like that. This is a real breakthrough. Uh, as you can tell, she has a little bit of difficulty with pronouncing some of the words. But as I listen to the interview in Spanish, I mean, she's right on target and she's very... You know, I, I am very much, I'll put it that way, in line with uh, her approach to the topic. We need to start opening up society and letting people who have these kind of difficulties and others to have an opportunity. 
Uh, Agustin Amor of Down España says he believes that she is the first person with Down syndrome to join a regional or national parliament in Europe. We haven't heard of anyone else, he says. It's a huge step forward in an example of real inclusion. Another regional political leader has been supportive of Galceran's political journey, and she credits him with believing in her and giving her the parliamentarian spot. She said, he believes in what I believe, and he has given me a great opportunity that I plan to take advantage of. She says, people with Down syndrome or other disabilities can do everything. We have a lot to contribute to society, and society is seeing it. But it is a very long road. There is a lot to do, and that is why associations and families work. The important thing is the person. Well, congratulations, uh, Ms. Galceran. I hope you have a long and illustrious and successful political career. I hope you can bring a lot of reform and change in a place that needs it tremendously. And that's true of, of the United States as well. I'll juxtapose that with Iceland just for a moment. In Iceland, you know, they don't have any Down syndrome children or people. They don't have any. You may say, how did that happen? Well, because they abort them all. They do the tests, prenatal tests. And in Iceland, they determined we don't want any of that kind of person being born. So the reason that in Iceland you can't find any people with Down syndrome is because they've all been aborted before they could be born. So this is a step in the right direction if ever there were one, that's for sure. 888-914-9149. I have a note here that came in from Kimberly. She's listening in Chicago. She says, Patrick, thank you for your program. Uh, it's informative. I have a question regarding blessed objects, particularly those in containers such as candles or holy water in glass or plastic containers. What's the proper disposal method for the container once the candles are burned or the holy water is depleted? I've been placing them in the recycling bin. However, I'm unsure if this is proper. We have even been to blessings where people bring in large containers of holy water, salt, etc., Honey and wine, I don't know why you'd bring in honey or wine, but whatever, um, that the priest has blessed. I wonder what those individuals do with all of the empty containers once the contents have been used. Likewise, our priest does a backpack, a backpack blessing, tongue twister, each year for students at the beginning of the school year. What are they to do with the backpacks once they are tattered and torn or outgrown? Good question. So here's the answer. Number one, the thing that is blessed is what is blessed. So a candle is what is blessed. The glass candle container holder, what have you, that is not blessed. Now, I suppose those could be blessed as well. But the object that is blessed, we know those as sacramentals. <clears throat> That's where you would want to dispose of them in a if possible, at least, in a respectful way. But the container, it, it, it's not blessed. And you may say, but it touched something that was blessed. That's true. But the priest did not bless the plastic milk jug that is now filled not with milk, but with holy water. The milk jug, the container, isn't what is blessed. It's the water within it. So you can put that container in the trash can, no problem. You don't, I mean, if you want to recycle it, People love recycling. You can do that, but you wouldn't be doing that for the purpose of the milk jug that once held a gallon of holy water. You see what I mean? Same thing with the glass that might hold a blessed candle. You don't have to do anything unique or special with the glass. Now, what about something like a backpack? Now, in this case, the object that is blessed, 
a rosary, a candle, a Bible, a crucifix, um, a backpack. I, I must confess, I haven't heard of that before, blessing of the backpacks. Um, in that case, it's really not a situation where you have to do anything special with the backpack. So after a few years, it gets torn and it's worn out. You can throw it in the trash. You're not committing any kind of a sin. You're not showing disrespect. If you want to be more traditional about it, and I personally tend to be more traditional about things, but you don't have to, but the custom in the church is that if it's flammable, you can burn it. If it's not flammable, you can bury it. So let's say that you had some, I don't know, a rosary, let's say, that had been blessed numerous times, and even once would be fine. And it's no longer functional because it's now in bits and pieces, and you can't really burn it because of the material it's made out of. You could bury it. And that's a respectful way of putting something that has been blessed and set apart for a godly use. Um, You can do that. If it's an old tattered Bible, for example, that you can't really salvage, it's you're unable to rebind it or whatever, you could burn that. Now, I'm not in favor of, of doing those things immediately. I would see, is there any way to repurpose this? Is there any way that, that this could be maybe given to a family who needs it? Is this something that the parish could use? Rosary beads that come all apart uh, can be restrung. So there are different ways to handle it, but bottom line is you don't have to worry about committing a sin, but if you're in question, then just burn it or bury it, and I wouldn't worry about the backpacks. 888-914-9149. Let's take some phone calls. We'll start with Jerry in El Centro, California. Good morning, Jerry. Uh, good morning, Patrick. Yeah. I wanted to comment. I, I believe that it was on Thursday morning. There was a lady that called in, and you guys were discussing the the flood in Genesis, whether it was global or geographical. Mm-hmm. And so my views global, and I just wanted to share a couple of verses out of, um, let's see, chapter 8, verse 9. What book are we in? Are we in Genesis? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 8, verse... Okay. Let's see. We'll get it in a second here. Mm-hmm. Ch- chapter 7, I think it's chapter 7, verse 19. Okay. Yes, yes. Verse 19 says, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. And then in chapter 8, verse 9, <clears throat> But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for there were waters on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into the ark with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those verses are well known. So what about that, Jerry? Uh, just just those two, were I thought, were, were uh, because I, I read through both chapters in it, it would say under heaven upon the earth, under heaven upon the earth. But in those two verses, it was like under the whole heavens and upon the whole earth. And mm-hmm. I thought that they gave good support for it. this was global and not just a certain area. And well, in- before you, before you go on, just FYI, you're right. That is 
that that was the point. In other words, the biblical description of the flood is that it was a global event and mm-hmm. that only eight people in the whole world were saved, as astonishing as that sounds. So that is the traditional view, and it is based upon many cha- or many passages, including those two. Um, the other alternative was that, and I don't remember now if it was the caller who was proposing this or just asking about having heard it proposed by somebody else, that the flood was just simply a localized event, and it didn't kill the entire human race minus eight people. So yeah. you're right; those are those are classic verses that are part of the traditional way of looking at this. Okay, and I just that's all I wanted to share in case maybe they might be listening again. I was hoping maybe I could get you on Friday. I had to run to work, so but I just wanted to uh, add that and uh, share it, and I want to thank you for taking my call. Happy to, Jerry, and um, safe travels on your way to work. I appreciate it. 888-914-9149. Now, I don't think I have it in front of me. I'll take a quick check here. But I did receive an email over the weekend from a gentleman who said, you know, it was a very, very thoughtful email, but the point he was making is, well, there is an alternative explanation. And he was pointing out that because of human migration from one place to another, that whereas I had talked about in that phone call last week about how in every area of the world, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, eastern hemisphere, western hemisphere, uh, everybody everywhere seems to know about this great flood that took place millennia ago. And even, I think I gave as an example, the Jesuit missionaries coming from France who came to lower Canada and upstate New York, that area, they were astonished to find that the native peoples there did know about the flood, and they did have their own way of telling that story, and they knew about um, Adam and Eve, for example, but with a different set of details that they told that story. So it gives credence to the theory that the reason all these people in all parts of the world were aware of it was because it affected all parts of the world, or at least where there were people. So the gentleman who wrote in, he said, yeah, but it basically could easily be explained just by human migration and that people carried the collective memory with them wherever they happened to go and told the story again in in other parts of the world where people hadn't heard it before, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, sure, that's a, that's a theory. That's maybe one of the more common theories as to what happened. I'm inclined to believe that because Jesus refers to it as an historical event, and he uses language like in in the days of Noah, when the flood came and swept them all away, it seems to, as I read these passages, to show that Jesus was referring to this not only as an historical event, but as an historical event that swept everybody away. So we have freedom to hold one view or the other. I mean, the Church hasn't said, you must believe that the flood of Noah, as as talked about in the book of Genesis, that that was absolutely every single part of the world and every single person died. I think all the biblical evidence strongly suggests that that is what happened. But we have freedom. So if you prefer the human migration idea, well, you're free to hold that. Um, it's not the one I hold, but I do appreciate the uh, gentleman who wrote in. 888-914-9149. Why don't we take a break a little bit early, and when we come back, we will get started with more phone calls. Uh, I do have some In-N-Out Burger news. Do you like In-N-Out Burger? I love In-N-Out Burger. 
I mean, I love it. And uh, there's some news about In-N-Out Burger. And no, it doesn't mean that they're expanding to all the other states in the union. That would be great news. It's something else, and I'll tell you what that is right after this quick timeout. Hi, Patrick Madrid here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. In today's crazy world, finding companies that align with your Catholic values is a challenge. Your choice of cell phone provider matters. Cyrus and I switched to Charity Mobile, and you should too. Enjoy excellent coverage on America's most reliable network while supporting a pro-life, pro-family company. Use offer code PATRICK for a free phone. Don't miss out. Act now at CharityMobile.com. This hour is sponsored by Christendom College. Send your child to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. Use promo code RELEVANTRADIO and get 50% off. Spots fill up very quickly, so apply today at TheBestWeekEver.com. That's TheBestWeekEver.com. to the conversation. Call now, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Welcome back. 888-914-9149 is the number to call. I got a note a few minutes ago, and it, several times It says, please do not read on the air. Please do not read this on the air. Do not read this on the air. Please don't read it on the air. Well, if you want me to try to offer a response, that's how I have to do it. And there's nothing about the email that was sent in. It has to do with pornography, by the way. But there's there's nothing about your email that would identify you or or anything about you. It's entirely um, generic. So... If you'd like me to respond, that I do those things on the air. I, I don't do it privately through correspondence. There's just no time because there's so many people who are emailing every day. So I won't read your email on the air, but that also means I won't be able to respond to it. So if you send me a note back, if you're hearing me, um, if you're hearing me talk about this, just send me a note back and say, okay, you can read it on the air. But since you adamantly asked me not to, I won't. But that's about as far as I can go with it. So if you don't email me back, I'll have to wish you well. God bless you. 888-914-9149. Okay, In-N-Out Burger. I mean, it's, it's an established fact. It's an axiomatic truth of the universe that In-N-Out Burgers are the best burgers anywhere. It just, it's just true. It's like two plus two equals four. Everybody knows it. Haha, I know there's a big debate. <laughs> I don't like In-N-Out Burger fries that much. But I do love the In-N-Out Burger. Anywho, news out over the weekend, this is from the New York Post, that In-N-Out Burger's only location in the country that is being closed is in Oakland. And it's closing after the fast food um, joint, they call it here, decided it could no longer risk the safety of workers and patrons in the city plagued by recent crime. Now, we, we are on the air in Oakland. Shout out to all of our Oakland listeners. Thank you. And all the rest of you in the Bay Area, thank you. But man, oh man, the crime is getting so bad in that particular part of Oakland that even In-N-Out Burger can't handle it anymore. And you'd think that they would be like a mecca of peace and good feelings because you go there and you get great hamburgers. But in March, they're closing their doors. 
Uh, it's a profitable location. It's not like they're not making money. They're making money. They're doing well, as In-N-Out Burgers tend to do. Uh, Chief Operating Officer Denny Warnick said uh, in an announcement over the weekend, despite taking repeated steps to create safer conditions for our customers and associates who are regularly victimized by car break-ins, property damage, theft, and armed robberies, uh, this location remains a busy and profitable one for the company, but our top priority must be the safety and well-being of our customers and associates. We cannot ask them to visit or work in an unsafe environment. I think they're right to do this, but what a shame that they have to do it. Data released by the Oakland Police at the start of the new year showed robberies increased 38% from 2022 to 2023. That's a big jump. Burglaries went up 23% year-to-year, and motor vehicle thefts spiked 44% in the same time period. Workers at Oakland's In-N-Out can either transfer to another one of the company's restaurants or accept a severance package. And um, the, what was he, the VP, what's his title again? He's the chief operating officer. He says, we are grateful to the local community which has supported us for over 18 years. And we recognize that this closure negatively impacts our associates and their families. What a shame. You you know, you don't know how good you got it, Oakland, or at least Oakland criminals. That's a good example of, uh, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. What a shame. But I mean, that's the way of the world. When people do bad things, that tends to cause obvious chaos and problems and many times they wound up boomeranging and hurting the very people or at least disadvantaging the very people um, who are committing these crimes. Well, the end of an era, that's for sure. Uh, Here's a note that comes in from Michelle and uh, this is on a, shall we say, a sensitive topic having to do, do you remember, I'm going to try to talk around this, we'll see how well I can. There is a gentleman who called me near the end of the show Friday this past week who was defending a certain sinful action that people do alone. And he was defending it, defending it, defending it, defending it, and arguing in favor of it. And finally, I asked him, well, you're doing this, right? Because you seem to be unwilling to consider that this is actually a serious sin, and it's because you're doing it, right? You are addicted to this, right? And after a long pause, he said, right, yes. So that's the call that uh, Michelle is referring to. And she says, uh, regarding that call, and the gentleman trying to say that that action was not a sin, uh, listening to him was disturbing to me. This is Michelle speaking. He said that there were pretty women everywhere, and he couldn't help himself This man needs to follow the example of St. Charbel, who was so humble that he never looked up. This man needs to look at women and see her, or see them, at a woman rather, and see her, uh, and see God in her, and see Mary in her, and associate himself with looking at her beauty. Slight revision there, Michelle, but you understand why. We have children who listen to the program. That's a good point. I wasn't aware of that detail of St. Charbel's uh, holiness or his reputation, but it makes complete sense to me. And I had talked briefly last week, in fact, it was during that same call, about a custom that's known as custody of the eyes. It's a it's a practice. Anybody can learn it. And the more you learn it, the more successful you will be at warding off or avoiding 
impure thoughts, etc., etc. Custody of the eyes is simple. It's a way of training yourself to look away from something that could cause you temptation. And we all know that the human body is beautiful. Now, for men, it's the, the, the female form. For women, presumably, it's the male form. But regardless, the human body is beautiful. God made us that way. So when we gaze upon somebody, we should remember what Jesus said. He says, you know, I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. So even though the act itself may not have been, have taken place, the idea and the, the fantasy, etc., etc., that has taken place in the mind of the beholder, and Jesus identifies that as sinful, seriously so. So custody of the eyes is simple. You could begin doing this today. It doesn't take much practice, and by the time you run into something that is potentially problematic for you, you'll know how to take care of it. So it's just simple like this. As you're driving to work in the morning, as you are walking down the boulevard, as you are in any situation you may be, invariably things will come into your field of vision that that you'll notice. You notice a car going through an intersection. You notice a, a flag flying in the distance. You notice um, something that, that comes into your field of vision. Custody of the eyes is as simple as you tell yourself, I'm not going to look at that car coming through the intersection. Now, if you're driving, you want to keep track of the cars coming through the intersection. But in a way that's not going to put you in any danger, you just say, I'm not going to look at that. Well, why not? There's nothing wrong with looking at a car. True. But I'm going to train myself to not look at that car or that flagpole or that whatever. And what happens is, As you do this, you become more and more able to quickly make a decision if, let's say, a beautiful woman appears on the scene. And if your, uh, what's the word here? If your default has been or had been that you would ogle, well, when you practice custody of the eyes, what happens is you, you switch your default from ogling to keeping your eyes fixed on something else. Or in the case of St. Charbel, um, as the lady, as Michelle pointed out, he kept his gaze lowered. That's another way to practice custody of the eyes, where you just, you take these simple things, they're benign, they're innocuous, they're not going to harm you in any way. And if you manage to master your curiosity and your natural attentiveness, and you look at something and say, oh, wow, I want to look at that, or, oh, wow, I want to look at her, after a while, you you can command that... um, that tendency. And and you can, with relative ease, avert your eyes. Now, it's not that you're averting your eyes because somehow you're disrespecting the beauty of God's creation, but remember what Jesus said. The beauty of God's creation personified in women, to use an example here, men would be the other example, but let's use this example that Jesus gave us. That's beauty personified. And God created beauty. So we can glorify God and at the same time say, yes, but that's not for me to gaze upon. She's not for me to gaze upon. I can, I mean, if you have um, a chaste mind, a pure mind, uh, chastity has to do with the body, purity has to do with the mind. But if you are already along that road and you're cultivating the virtues of, of purity and chastity, 
Sure, you could gaze upon somebody if you weren't in danger of falling into lustful thoughts. Not everybody can do that. So custody of the eyes is a, is a really good way to begin training yourself so that if you have the ability to look away from a flagpole or a McDonald's or a car going through a, um, an intersection, when the time comes, you will have the ability to say, I'm not going to look in her direction, at least not right now. Thanks for that email. 888-914-9149. How about Scott now in Cedar Park, Texas? Good morning, Scott. Where is Cedar Park in relation to, say, Dallas? Uh, it's uh, actually next to Austin. Ah, okay. Well, welcome it's aboard, Austin sir. Austin radio station. Yep. Thank you. Uh, the reason I was calling is uh, I had a Protestant friend approach me uh, that knows I'm Catholic, and he... Uh, is in, he's been in a Bible study for 10 years with some Protestant brothers and sisters, and he said that it's become apparent to him that the um, Eucharist is really um, drawing, drawing him back to Catholicism, and okay. he knows that there's going to be some kind of intercession, and he wanted some literature that would help him talk to them about why he's feeling this need to get back to some kind of Eucharistic liturgical um, habit that mm -hmm. he misses from his youth. And uh, his, his wife is uh, in, you know, in this same uh, church with him and it's causing some friction. And with his wife and, with, mm -hmm. you know, he's making a big change in his family and he's already gone to see a priest. And the priest said, you know, to, um, you know, to avoid confrontation. But at the same time, he wants to be able to talk to the people in his Bible study. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. Mm. Well, this is great news, first of all, because the Lord is drawing him. And it's not surprising when you really start digging into what the Holy Bible says about the Eucharist, it becomes ever more clear that this is not merely a symbol, that the Lord really does come to us under the appearances of bread and wine in Holy Communion, in the Holy Eucharist. So that it's, it's a happy thing. I'm not surprised to hear that it's happening, but I'm glad that it is. So a few practical things I could recommend, Scott. Number one would be encourage your friend to start listening to this program and to Relevant Radio in general. Maybe you can show him on his phone how to download the Relevant Radio app, and he can have it at his fingertips. So any time of the day or night, whenever he wants to listen, whenever it's convenient for him, he can do that on the Relevant Radio app, free, by the way. Then I would also suggest that if he's inclined to be on Twitter, I really like Twitter. I, I know it's called X nowadays, but there's a convert to the faith whose name is Joshua Charles. And I would encourage him to look up Joshua Charles on Twitter because he... I think invariably, I don't really think he posts anything else, but he posts on a regular basis, several times a day even. He posts sometimes quite lengthy and substantial commentaries from the church fathers and even his own experience as a convert to the church. He was a Protestant for many years and he became Catholic. And the Holy Eucharist is one of those things that drew him. And so he has just a plethora of of tweets that bring solid quotations from the early church fathers on issues like the Holy Eucharist. In other words, they're exegeting the Bible. These are the early exegetes 
of Scripture. And so he quotes them at length and gives the citations so anybody can check them. And one of the services that he renders to the people who watch or who follow him on Twitter is that he demonstrates repeatedly that the early church was Catholic. The early church believed in the Mass as a sacrifice. The early church believed in the Eucharist as the real presence of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. I'll give you an example. So here's one that Joshua Charles quoted just a couple of days ago, um, and I'll just read it to you because it's relatively brief. Uh, this is from St. Justin Martyr, who in his first apology uh, was defending the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and this is in the year 151. And the headline is, Ancient Christian Apologists, the Eucharist is the body and blood of the incarnate Christ and can only be received by those who believe rightly and have been reborn in baptism. That's another issue that many Protestants deny. They deny that baptism regenerates. So here's the quote from St. Justin Martyr. We call this food the Eucharist, and no one, no one else is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching to be true and who has been washed in the washing that is for the remission of sins and for regeneration, referring to baptism, and is thereby living as Christ enjoined. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, referring to the Eucharist, but since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by Him, Jesus, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. Now, that's just a snippet from what else St. Justin Martyr has to say on this topic of the Eucharist. And what you'll find, or your friend will find, and you'll find too, is that this is repeated across the board with regard to the devotion to Our Lady, prayers for the souls in purgatory, the sacramental system, the priesthood, confession to a priest, baptismal regeneration, you know what I'm saying? The Church Fathers yep. destroy this notion that that the earliest Christians were like evangelical Protestants gathering for their Bible studies. They, they were not. It, it's, a, it's a widespread myth. And once people realize that, once they realize that the original Christians, the ones who in some cases knew the apostles, like St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example— um, or they knew people who knew the apostles. They were they were taught the gospel by the apostles or by their protégés. When you realize that these early church leaders, these, these biblical exegetes, these pastors, these church fathers, they were thoroughly Catholic. It becomes, it just becomes an impossible situation to hold the view that, yeah, well, but... I'm going to stay Presbyterian, or I'm going to stay Baptist, or I'm going to stay Lutheran. And this is why we see so many people in that world, once they discover the truth that the early church was Catholic, not Protestant, or anything else for that matter, certainly weren't Mormon, they certainly weren't uh, any of the other permutations, they were Catholic. And, and that's, what, that's a huge breakthrough, and often that's all that's needed for somebody to wind up saying, okay, where do I sign? I want to become Catholic, because I want to join that church, because that's the church that Jesus established. So check out his Twitter feed. And then lastly, Scott, specifically on the Eucharist, I would recommend a book called The Hidden Manna. 
The Hidden Manna by Father James T. O'Connor, and it's a one-volume biblical and historical look at the Holy Eucharist. It's really good, and I'm sure your friend will... <laughs> I'm sure he's going to respond to it very positively. The Hidden Manna, okay? Thanks. You're welcome, and I... Glad we had a chance to talk. We have to take a break, though. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Remember back in the days when anybody who said, I don't want to get a COVID vaccination would be shouted down and vilified and deplatformed and scorned and spat upon? Well, I've got a little story about that kind of thing. It might surprise you what happened. I'll share that with you on the other side of this quick timeout. Today, we'd like to thank Tom, who's listening in Illinois, for donating his 1978 Slick Craft Boat. Whoa. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting RelevantRadio.com car. That's RelevantRadio.com car. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. Uh, that number again, if you'd like to be on the air, it's 888-914-9149. Love to hear from you. You need a second opinion or want to run something by me, whatever. 888-914-9149. I mentioned a moment ago, uh, kind of a follow-up on back in the days of COVID. Remember then? Back in the olden days, when if somebody said, I don't want to get a vaccine or I don't want to wear a mask or something, they would get shouted down and they would be despised. And it was a fairly common thing. Don't really hear much about that anymore. But over the weekend, the story broke about the sudden death of a gentleman in Australia. His name was Mike Dixon. And I'm reading here from Human Events. Uh, he tried to cancel uh, Novak Djokovic over not taking the COVID vaccine. This is during the Australian Open. And the backstory is this guy, Mike Dixon, may he rest in peace. He was just about to celebrate his 60th birthday. And... Um, he died suddenly. And this was, he was at the Melbourne, he was in Melbourne, Australia for the Australian Open. Uh, the news of his death was confirmed through a social media post by his wife and children. Now, I want to I wanna specify that this, this is reported in 2024. So it just reported in human events. And I'm thinking that he may have died within the past year, but I hadn't heard about it and human events didn't report on it till today. So uh, factor in the time lag here, but it says uh, that the news of his death was confirmed through a social media post by his wife and children who said, we are devastated to announce that our wonderful husband and dad, Mike has collapsed and died while in Melbourne for the, um, the Australian open for 38 years. He lived his dream covering sports all over the world. He was a truly great man, and we miss him terribly. And that was from his family. So again, may he rest in peace. This is not in any way um, disrespectful to the man, this man who was passing. But the backdrop to the story is that although he was respected in the sports journalism 
area. Uh, Mr. Dixon was also the author of many stories, articles. He just seemed very relentlessly obsessed with trying to shame and cancel a tennis star named Novak Djokovic. Now, I don't know if it, if he pronounces it Djokovic or Djokovic, but um, that guy. Some of his headlines included, Welcome to the Wacky World of Novak Djokovic, Anti-Vaxxer Tennis Superstar is a tree hugger who insists Bosnia's pyramids gave off mystic energy and very positive thoughts can purify water. Or in another case, he wrote about this tennis player, uh, Novak Djokovic's weasel words cut no ice as he has damaged his reputation with his misinformation around the Australian Open. And this has to do with um, his refusal to take the COVID vaccination. His leadership credentials have been badly damaged, he wrote. Again, Novak Djokovic will remain a hero to some, but to many others, he has trashed his reputation beyond repair. He could ruin his chances of becoming the greatest of all time by refusing to take the vaccine. It is a strange hill to die on for a player who is so desperate to be loved. And this is something that he did repeatedly, trying to destroy this tennis player's career, not because the tennis player did anything wrong to him, but because he publicly said, I'm not going to take that vaccination. And I can just hear my friends saying, it's not a vaccination. I understand. The, uh, the jab, the shot. So what happens is he doesn't take the vaccination. Uh, he had to stand down from playing in the Australian Open in 2022 over his vaccination status. And his persecutor... This gentleman, Mike Dixon, is the one who was like super into vaccinations. Got to get vaxxed, got to get boosted, got to get vaxxed, got to get boosted, and did all of the above, and then drops dead suddenly on his 60th birthday. Now, human events does not say, well, that was caused because he was vaccinated, but it, it obviously leaves the question open. Why did he die? And why did so many people who were adamantly, and even in many ways, they were ruthlessly trying to cancel and shout down and deplatform and get fired, if at all possible, like what Mike Dixon was doing to this tennis player, who had done nothing to him. All he did was differ on the issue. You know, what about my body, my choice? I guess that doesn't work anymore. And he just says, I decline to take the vaccine. And, and Mike Dixon was so incensed by this that he, it seemed as though he made it his, life, his life's work to persecute this tennis player and to try to trash his reputation. And who winds up dying? Mike Dixon. Suddenly, in good health from all appearances. So that leaves the question open. And this is just another thought on this topic before we pass on to other things. 888-914-9149. Have you noticed that many people who die suddenly, and we're talking about athletes, actors, other people, not all of whom are prominent, some of whom are prominent, and they die suddenly, they just drop dead, and there's no cause of death given. I find that curious, and I suspect the reason is because if there's any possibility that maybe there was some adverse reaction that could be in some way correlated with a vaccine, whether it's a thrombosis or it's a heart attack or it's some other issue, um, that they just won't report it. They won't say, how did this person die? And it, it's one thing if you're 
way up in years and you die, that's how very often people die. They just die suddenly. The body wears out. But not when you're 25 or 30 or 35 or 40, or for that matter, this gentleman was just about to turn 60. And prior to COVID, you really didn't hear very often about people just suddenly clicking out all of a sudden. And I find it curious that more often than not now, the cause of death is not released. So I have to ask myself, why? Why not? And, and if, it, if it is in some way correlatable to the vaccine, maybe it's not. Maybe science will show it's not. It has nothing to do with that. It's just a coincidence. Okay, fair enough. I'd rather like to see that be the case. But if that's not the case, don't you think people would have a right to know? Shouldn't they know? I think they should. But that's just me. 888-914-9149. How about Veronica now in Chicago? Good morning, Veronica. Oh, yes. Hi, good morning. Yes, good morning. Um, I just had a question. I just wanted to clarify because I do have some people I know that are in the Orthodox Church. And is the Catholic Church the original church or is the Orthodox Church the original church? Just how to quit, how to mm-hmm. differentiate that. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the Catholic Church is the original church. The Orthodox churches, as we understand them today, the Greek Orthodox and the other Orthodox churches, they broke away from the Catholic Church in the year 1054. And there were many reasons given for that. Um, one of which, by the way, was the the fury that erupted. And I think rightly so, because the uh, crusade that passed through Constantinople on the way to the Holy Land to fight against the Muslims, um, it stopped in Constantinople and sacked the city. Their fellow Christians plundered, looted, murdered their fellow Christians there. And that was a massive wound in the body of Christ. It's not the only reason, but that's one of them, at least an historical reason. There are theological reasons as well. But they departed from the Catholic Church. Now, they will tell you, nope, we preserve the Catholic Church, we are the original Catholic Church, and those Latins, they're the ones who left the Church with their silly innovations, like the filioque clause, the the assertion that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that that phrase or that word in Latin, filioque, means and the Son. So when we in the Creed on Sundays say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, that was a formulation that was added in the Latin Church um, some centuries after the Nicene Creed and the Constantinopolitan Creeds had been drawn up. And so one of the sticking points was that the Orthodox believer said, you're adding things to the creed that we didn't approve of. And so that was another issue. Papal primacy is another issue. But the main thing is that the historical data demonstrates clearly, conclusively, overwhelmingly, that those were the churches that broke communion with the Catholic Church. One interesting tidbit is that in their divine liturgy, when they recite the Nicene Creed, they refer to, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. You know, they can't escape that, because when the Church established these creeds in the councils, it was the Catholic Church. So there's a long and and sort of uh, ongoing polemic on this issue. I think most Catholics don't really, they're not even really aware of it, much less do they fret and fume over it, but 
many Orthodox folk really do still get a lot of anger out of this. And so the, the sources that demonstrate would include, if you're looking for something, if you want something free, I would go to the Catholic Answers website, Veronica, and type in Vladimir Soloviev. You can even just type in Soloviev, S-O-L-O-V-I-E-V. Still with me? Yeah. Veronica? Okay. Yes, I'm here. Yeah. Okay, the reason I mentioned him, he was a 19th century Russian Orthodox um, figure who converted to the Catholic Church, and he spent the remainder of his days trying to explain to his Russian Orthodox confreres that they too should become Catholic. And so he wrote a lot about the primacy of Peter as seen in Scripture and tradition and other things as well. And Father Ray Ryland of Blessed Memory, he wrote a number of articles in which he quoted extensively from Vladimir Soloviev, and he kind of brought back into the the mainstream, in English anyway, some of these writings that are very helpful. So that's free. If you just go to their website and type in Soloviev, you'll find them. Um, I would also recommend, uh, too bad this book is out of print. I don't know why it's out of print, but it was called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys by David Hess and a couple of other co-authors. And uh, it it just blows the doors off the arguments that the Orthodox Church is like the original church and the Catholic Church broke away because it's replete with quotes from the Eastern Church fathers at that time and, and leading up to the time of the, the Great Schism that demonstrate the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. Another one would be ending the Byzantine Greek Schism by, uh, not Father, he's a layman, by James Likoudis, L-I-K-O-U-D-I-S. Uh, he wrote another book recently on, on papal primacy, and he's looking at the patristic era. You know, what did the church fathers say about this? So it's the evidence that would have existed before 1054, and it too, it, it just, I think, really blows the doors off these arguments that it was the Catholic Church that left, not the Orthodox churches. So Works by James Lacutus would be helpful. Um, if you can find a stray copy online of Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, that would be helpful. Uh, Father Aidan Nichols, a Dominican scholar, he teaches at Cambridge University, and his last name is N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Father Aidan Nichols. He wrote a really good book called Rome in the Eastern Churches, which gives a very calm, non-confrontational overview of everything that happened. So that, too, would be another good resource if you're interested in digging deeper, Veronica. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, thank you. And that brings us to the point where we have to take a break in just a minute. Oh, you know, one other thing occurs to me, too. Uh, the late, great Dr. Warren Carroll, he was the founder and first president of Christendom College. Shout out to Christendom College. And he wrote a masterful multi-volume work called The History of Christendom. And the volume that deals directly with this issue of the, the split in the church in 1054, resulting in what we now think of as the Eastern Orthodox churches, that volume is called The Cleaving of Christendom. And um, is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's The Cleaving of Christendom, maybe volume three. And if you're interested in a masterful historical overview of those events, um, check out Warren Carroll's work on that topic. Very, very enlightening. Well, good. We got hour one in the can, and we're going to come back and do hour two, and then we'll do hour three after that. 
And you can participate by calling 888-914-9149.